Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Orwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're popping corn, melting butter and settling down to watch some films. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? Currently drooling at the prospect of a lot of molten butter right now. Don't don't drool in the popcorn, Matt. That's not hygienic. <laughs> no. Coming soon, we have the Blasphemous Tome, Issue 8. So if you're backing us by the end of the year, you'll uh, get a copy on PDF. And if you're backing us at $5 and above, you get a hard copy sent to your very door. And in addition, if you're backing us at that level by the end of November, you will also get a Christmas card from none other than Jackson Elias. Maybe signed by us as his proxies. He has given us power of attorney from beyond the grave, so we are his signing agents in this respect. And this card, it's not just any old tat from off the shelf. These are custom-designed cards that we have especially made for us that tend to have appropriate themes. Of eldritch horror. (laughs) Yes, the true eldritch horror of Christmas. Yes, we should see if we can get Jackson to exert himself at some point and get like an ectoplasm thumbprint on the inside of uh, some of the cards. Don't ask too much of him, Matt. <laughs> Again, that doesn't sound very hygienic, Matt. <laughs> yeah, that may not be COVID safe. Ectoplasm. Oh. I'm not sure. Mm. Also, Scott, you've been, uh, we say we're going to talk about movies. You're probably bored of movies, aren't you? You've been doing the October <laughs> Horror Movie Challenge. I have been watching a lot of films. Yeah, at the time of recording, we're a bit over halfway through the month. So obviously I haven't watched the full raft of films for this month yet, but I have seen a fair amount. If you haven't heard me talk about this already or seen me post about it on social media, the idea is that I am posting a horror film review every day, a review for a film I've not seen before, And I've seen some damn good films this year so far. I've seen some that haven't particularly impressed me. I haven't seen any real stinkers yet, but the month isn't over yet. But yeah, some of the highlights that I've seen so far. I definitely recommend the first film I saw this month, Possessor, which is the second film from Brandon Cronenberg, which is this really weird psychological horror come science fiction film about assassins and electronic possession of unwitting people and identity crises and yes it's a really violent weird upsetting film in all the right ways there was jacob's wife a kind of vampire story which is about this not old married couple but relatively old in their 60s whose life is turned upside down by well vampirism and it's amazing fantastic performance from barbara crampton after midnight again is sort of almost a a romance rather than a horror film but it does have a big fuck off monster in it and a bit of blood and it's weird and it's probably my film of the month so far and there was a film that really took me by surprise a taiwanese film which has an awful title i almost passed it by just because of the title it is called mon 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 monsters it's 
about a kid at school, a teenager who's been bullied and ends up in detention with his bullies, and they end up stumbling across, while doing some community service for their detention, a couple of monsters and end up capturing one of them and finding ways of trying to use it and exploit it. It's a weird combination of an almost light-hearted tone at times, but then really dark stuff moving towards an absolutely fucking brutal ending. Just everything about it surprised me all the way through. It's an amazing film. So, yeah, at the time you're hearing this, it'll be too late to play along at home, but there will be the full month's worth of reviews up on BlasphemousTomes.com, so do take a look. Well... Having a look up on this little-known site that I don't spend much money on at all, uh, Kickstarter, I think it's called, I understand there's a project up there at the minute that's caught some of our interest, hasn't there, Paul? Yeah, there sure has. The HPLHS are doing a collection of three volumes, kind of inspired by their podcast, Voluminous, which each episode of that looks at an individual letter written by H.P. Lovecraft and reads it aloud because both Andrew and Sean are great voice actors and then discusses the letter in some detail. At the time of recording, the project is well past funded and runs until the 13th of November and is titled Miskatonic Missives, colon, The Letters of H.P. Lovecraft. Now, speaking of voluminous, I've kind of been listening, but then lapsed. But inspired by this episode, I went back and listened to their most recent episode. It's a letter by Lovecraft addressed to Robert Barlow. I found it a really fascinating episode, actually. Lovecraft talks a lot about his intended journey down to Florida to visit Barlow and goes into great detail about his, uh, basically the logistics of the buses he can catch and how much he can live on each day by eating like crackers and, you know, <laughs> taking cutlery with him. Or, But then they get into some comment about a characteristic trait, a personality trait, Alexithmia? Alexithmia, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is characterized by the subclinical inability to identify and describe emotions experienced by oneself. And this personality trait is said to affect up to like 10% of people, I guess, on a sliding scale and can be instilled in a person to some degree by a failure of perhaps the parents to emotionally engage with the child at a young age so those kind of emotional responses aren't really coded in and man if anybody was sort of set up to have that to a degree Lovecraft would I would think would be a pretty good example with his father being in an asylum his mother you know not being particularly well either during his, his childhood but if you want to check that out I'll just mention that again so that's the voluminous podcast from the hplhs yeah great listen and uh what looks like a great kickstarter as well with some really nice volumes How many letters did lovecraft write oh over a hundred thousand i think wasn't it yeah it's referenced to be like a hundred thousand uh, many of which are in existence but uh, many of which i'm sure have been lost but and these aren't just like notes on the back of a postcard these go on for pages yeah. and pages some of them And now on to our main topic, the good friends media catch-up, films. 
This is the latest entry in our now regular series of catch-ups on what we've been watching and reading recently that started off last year with our backer specials during lockdown. If you want to go back and find those, if you're a backer, you can find those in your Patreon feed. There's a dozen of those episodes. But we've done a couple of other ones this year, looking at the television we've been watching and the books we've been reading. And so now it is time to talk about films. So. Paul, why don't you kick us off? You've already mentioned, Scott, that you're doing the October Horror Movie Challenge. Well, I was chatting to Dirk the Dice from the Grognard Files podcast recently, and he's been looking at running a gangbusters game and drew up a list of about 10 films for a Mobtober mini (laughs) film festival. I've watched a few of those, and that's been quite fun. The third one that he chose was Free Fire by uh, Ben Wheatley from 2016. I've seen this before and I love it and I was quite happy to watch it again. I I first saw it in 2017 in uh, the Curzon Cinema down in Soho. I'd heard a review of it by Mark Kermode, the the critic, and uh, he gave it a good review and I thought, you know, let's check it out. But I didn't really know much about it. So it's an action film set in 1978. I mean, an action film with kind of dark comedy and lots of great dialogue. You know, it's kind of a gangster film, if you like. It kind of fits into that bracket. You know, it's a couple of gangs at a warehouse, a factory, doing a deal. Okay, and obviously, you know, we know the deal's going to go bad. And it's basically, that is the whole premise of the film. The deal goes bad and we watch the fallout. And it's pretty much all in this this old factory. So it's uh, Boston, 1978. One of the gangs is an IRA gang looking to buy a bunch of automatic weapons. Or are they automatic weapons? They're M16s is what they want anyway. The other gang are a gang of American gang who uh, are going to supply them. Of the gangs, there's about four or five people in each gang. And there's a nice dynamic, I think, that we could... There's a lot here to talk about in terms of gaming, I think. In the way the gangs are set up, there's like... In each gang, there's like a couple of people that you would sort of call competent they're like the leaders and they're they're kind of competent individuals and then in each gang there's a couple of uh what would you call them kind of incompetence (laughs) a couple of you know grunts who are who are there to sort of carry things and just be uh dog's bodies i guess so there's varying relationships between some of the individuals on each side there's quite a bit of trust but on, in between others, there's friction, and that all sort of plays off really nicely. It kind of starts off fine. The deal, you know, there's the guy, they've got the boxes, they leave them open, and straight away they're like, well, they're not M16s. That's not what we ordered. And they're like, yeah, but these are really good weapons. They're AR-18s. So they call the guy through with the van, and this van is is very important. They, they call the guy through into this big old sort of uh, warehouse and that you know, they've had a bit of a chat. The van comes through and one of the guys in the Irish gang recognises the guy driving the, the American gangster's van as someone he had a falling out with yesterday. So he's kind of like covering up his face and trying to hide. And the Irish boss is sort of telling him, you know, get over there and shift those crates out of that wagon. And he's like, oh no, I don't feel very good. I feel a bit ill. And so... Very quickly, these two suddenly recognise each other and they each want to get each other's throats, basically. But the boss is kind of, this is a business deal here. We need to calm this down. Just hold your horses. 
we'll deal with our man who's kind of stepped out of line. He gets a bit beaten up and uh, sort of disciplined. Is that all good? Yeah, okay, all right. But this guy on the Irish gang, one of the dog spotters, he can't help but like provoke the other side. <laughs> so the tensions just raise to the point where Harry, the American guy, just goes to the van while nobody's really paying attention to him, gets a, like an ugly little pistol out, walks over and just shoots the Irish guy in the shoulder. And at that point, like all hell breaks loose, but the film just slows down to kind of slow-mo and everybody is like turning and diving <laughs> and pulling guns all in slow motion and the music kicks in. It's just an awesome scene. And at the end of that, everybody there's just bullets flying everywhere and everybody's like hunkered down and this is a crappy old factory as they're going in they're like i wonder what they made here and they're like well whatever it was nobody wants it anymore and that's just like <laughs> that's your setting it's just this crappy old factory it's night there are lights in the factory but there's like concrete pillars there's boxes there's kind of old metal trolleys there's walkway you know there's gantries there's there's steps going up you know, and as they do explore some of the place, there are sort of rooms that you kind of go into and you kind of think, well, what would this room be used for? Or why is there a corridor here? Because it's a factory, it's designed for a purpose, but it's not a purpose that we really know. On its surface, that's kind of it. It's a big gunfight then. And that <laughs> sounds, well, that sounds a bit crap. But so much of the, the characters is revealed during this gunfight. So there'll be an initial exchange of gunfire and then it'll all go quiet and they'll start talking to each other mm. and they're separated and they can't see each other. They're hunkered down behind something. It's never really big enough to conceal them. You know, you're kind of laid down behind this bit of concrete, but it's not enough to conceal all of you. You've got a leg sticking out or, or something like that. So I think in terms of what we can take from this for gaming, if you want to sort of run good combats, this would be a great place to look because mm. watching it, I just find so much of the time I'm and it's not jump scares that are making me jump it's just I'm flinching because of the gunfire and the feeling like you're constantly going to get shot you never feel like you're safe that really comes across really well when people are shot I kind of initially thought oh when people are shot they're either killed or they're not but it's not like that it's like there are a couple of instances where somebody's shot and just dies outright they're just shot in the head or you know whatever in the heart and they, they just go down that's it they're out but there's also quite a lot of instances where they're just more bothered that their suits got damaged <laughs> or they're just clipped by a bullet and there's a bit of blood but quite often it's like a wound that will incapacitate to some degree there's a lot of like dragging yourself across the floor or finding something so you can sort of put it under your shoulder as a crutch I just don't think we see enough of that in games. It's just a number of hit points. Mm. And you don't get that effect of what the bullets are doing to people. And there's this kind of wearing down of people as well. You know, they start off fresh and sharp and they're good. Mm. But, you know, maybe they just get a couple of little flesh wounds or, or as it just goes on, they just get tired and they get fatigued and they get blood loss. And even the really competent ones after a while, they're just also they're like drinking and taking drugs and <laughs> arguing and, and so on how does this work in terms of pacing though because it sounds like from what you say they pulled it off completely i mean is it the kind of thing that you can learn from in terms of pacing a game particularly a one shot i think so 
I mean, I wrote down a list of what we might call bangs, like things that you can sort of throw in for when mm. things are getting a bit quiet or not much is happening. So, you know, they're in this factory. It's before people have got mobile phones, of course, right? No, yeah. About halfway through, they hear a phone ringing. They're a long way from anywhere. You know, they're out in like an industrial place. So there's nowhere they can go to get a phone or whatever. So that's something now they both both sides want to get to the phone so they can call reinforcements now mm. and it's a fantastic scene of a, they're already like fucked up but they're they both trying to get up to this office where this phone is that's a great scene there's one of the characters this guy that used to be in the black panthers who's on the american team or is he it's kind of like the allegiances of people they're kind of thrown together but they're not like cohesive teams so this is one guy in this fantastic yellow 70s suit the clothes are great as well and he takes a shot quite early on and he's down it's like oh that's a shame because you know martin he was great but then about halfway through he gets up but he's taken a bullet wound and you can see his brain and he just gets (laughs) up and he's like where am i why are you here and just picks up a gun and he's just like he's obviously impaired he's brain damaged or whatever or totally disorientated and that's just another great bit of uh, somebody you thought was dead and out of it and there's a pool of blood around (laughs) him suddenly gets up there's a third party that suddenly turn up in the factory and start taking pot shots and it's like both sides are suddenly wait a minute those are rifles that sounds like a grand who's shooting at us when they do have some shooting i think somebody's sort of falling around they accident well accidentally you know shoot off the a padlock i think and it releases a couple of doors and these canisters roll out like these gas canisters <laughs> which of course get shot and just like <laughs> rocket through the room um causing yet more devastation there's loads of great little things like that but as i said the characters are revealed through the action i think that's really good you really get to know the characters because there's quite a bit of time where they're just kind of hunkered down and and they're just talking with each other so there's um vernon that the boss of the americans with this very strong south african accent well like the the cool guy works for him named ord played by arnie hammer who is just fantastic and is a very competent with his handgun but Vernon is like desperate and he's just like, Ord, you know, you protect me. You're going to get me out of here, you know. And Ord's like, you know, screw you. But he's like, I'll give you another 5K, another 10K. You know, just give you more money to get me out of here in desperation. <laughs> I think that the pinnacle scene of this for me is the scene where there's that van that I mentioned earlier. It's a three minute scene. And watching it again, I'd forgotten just how much is packed into this one scene. You can see this scene on, on, on like YouTube, but I would urge you to watch the whole film because this is near the end of the film. We've already had the van come in with the guns. And as they're driving in, one of the guys says, do you like John Denver? And they kind of put in the, uh, <laughs> the eight track with it on. And it's Annie's song by John Denver. And you just get a few seconds of it. But now, Harry, the guy who originally started the whole thing off by clipping this guy with the pistol, He's picked up the suitcase of cash because obviously there's a suitcase full of cash that everybody wants to get. And it's just sat in the middle of the floor between the two gangs. So he's now picked this up and he's like limping. He's already fucked up. Ord is like, you know, put that bag down. Don't go to the van. And he just walks over to the van and gets in. But the van has already taken loads of damage by now. So Harry's in this thing like, 
and he's revving it and it's literally going at walking speed. And he's kind of going along and Ord's taking pot shots at him. And then his nemesis, the guy that he shot earlier, isn't out yet. He's still around. And he, because it's only going walking speed, he comes over and starts getting in the van. And they have this really <laughs> ugly fight of like just trying to thump each other in the front of this, on these van seats. And they're like biting each other and kicking <laughs> each other. And, it, and the van's being shot at and it's traveling along at like three miles an hour. And you're just getting this wonderful echoing John Denver song as it trundles along. Fuck you, crash. Start, you piece of junk. <laughs> And then this guy falls out of the van and Harry is just elated as, as the van comes around because it's just sort of locked in a little circle going around in, in, the, in the factory. And his target, Steve-O, the, the guy that he shot at the start, is just lying on the floor, unable to move. And the van is just like coming at him. And you can see the wheel is coming at the guy's head. And Harry is just rocking back and forth. He's totally, you know, you know he's going to die, Harry, even the guy, you know, driving it. But he's just so elated and it just crushes the guy's head in a wonderful gore fest. And then Ord, this cool guy, he's like, oh, fuck this. And he just sort of sits back and, and like gets another joint out of his pocket and puts it in his mouth. And you can see in the background, we talked about those gas canisters earlier, the whole place is going up in flame now through a door. You can see these flames. And Ord just gets his lighter. He's a cool guy. And he's just going to like take a few minutes and just chill out because, you know, all this shit has broken loose. And he, he just lights his joint. And, he's just sat, and then the sprinklers kick in. <laughs> and he's just like, oh, <laughs> it's just such a, so much happens in that three minutes. Gore and elation and terror and... And John Denver. And in the van going like so slowly as well. It's it's just, uh, yeah, it's a joy to behold, I have to say. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just think it's a brilliantly paced film. When you tell someone about it, it sounds like, well, that would be rubbish. But actually, somehow... It just has so much life in it and so much style yeah. and so much great like dialogue as well. Ben Wheatley is a fantastic visual storyteller. I've not seen Free Fire yet, but I've seen a bunch of his other films, Kill List, Sightseers, A Field in England. I really want to catch up with In the Earth at some stage because I've heard great things about that. And yeah, he certainly knows how to tell a story through film. I really want to see Sightseers because uh, I've had that recommended to me and i noticed that steve oram is in it yeah who we enjoyed so much in the film a dark song that we did an episode about yeah uh, we're not only in it but he's the co-writer um so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing that one. Oh yeah sightseers is amazing it's a very funny film very dark film yeah he seems to do that dark comedy is you know is in this as well and also he's in uh, in fabric as well mm. uh, the peter strickland film which again for dark comedy that's an amazing piece of work so matt how about you what have you been watching as per normal i don't get to generally watch too many new films so i had a bit of a sit down think of what could I potentially do this time and I ended up narrowing it down to uh, two films that I'd been on my list to watch for a while probably watched those and went yeah there's not much I can get out of the gaming for this one 
and then stumbled across this one on Netflix, which was uh, kind of a happy happenstance. Before we get into it, what were the two that you discounted? Ones that had been recommended and ones that had been on my list for a while were Vivarium. Oh, yeah. I loved Vivarium. I, I definitely wouldn't put it in the Love It camp, but it was okay, and it had a few interesting ideas, but on the whole, I just felt it was lacking something. All right. It was just missing something that made it a great film for me. There were certain individual moments, but not enough that I could really talk about it for quite a while. Yeah, it's weird and claustrophobic, and I don't know, I think I could get some gaming inspiration out of the way that it uses captivity, but anyway, sorry, uh, yeah. what, what was the other one? Uh, the other one was Bad Times at the El Royale, which oh, yeah. had been on my list for a long time to finally get to see. And while I enjoyed it, again, I just thought there was something a bit lacking mm. and that there wasn't enough really I could pull out for gaming. Or at least nothing that's special that we hadn't already talked about. Mm. But then I stumbled on this one on Netflix, which, as it happened, only been released a few days prior. It came out on the 29th of September this year. I quite like it. The only thing I really didn't particularly like about it is the title. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, the title is No One Gets Out Alive, which I thought, A, it could have been a shorter title, but it also there's something a bit too cliched and a bit too... Yeah, it just did, the title doesn't do anything for me, but the rest of the film is really, really good. It revolves around an illegal Mexican immigrant called Ambar, with two A's rather than an A and an E. She recently gets into Cleveland, one of the opening shots of the film. It's not the opening shot of the film. There is a kind of pre-title sequence, but I won't go into that because it kind of spoils a little bit about what comes up later. She's sat in this cargo container with a few other folks that have come in from either Mexico or various other parts into the US. And she's looking for work. She's looking for a cheap apartment that she can stay in that doesn't ask questions where she can pay cash. And she's generally trying to build up a load of money so that she can get a fake ID that says that she's from Texas and that she can then start to build a, in inverted commas, proper life for herself in the US. And it's fairly early on in those opening scenes where her current apartment says well you've been here two weeks you haven't showed us any id you've got to either get us some id or clear out so she takes the latter option and clears out and starts looking for cheap apartments and she comes across this blatantly scary spooky ass house on the outskirts of cleveland where you think that bad shit is definitely going to go down here get the hell out of there no she goes in through the front door and she gets herself a room She's told there's only one other resident in the building, apart from the owner, who's currently doing the place up because it, it's run down as hell. There's some very, very bodged together DIY attempts at lighting. Uh, kind of those little buttons you have in like student halls where it'll keep the light on for a few seconds and then the light goes off so it doesn't run up your electricity bill. You get the impression that it's cheap-ass renovation. The place is still decked out with furniture from the previous occupants or the, the older owner who you get the impression was fairly old just by the side the decor and this kind of style of what's there and she basically goes yeah this is great i've got to pay a month up front which is a bit of a sod because it's kind of eating into her funds to try and get this fake id and then you see little snippets of her life like working in a sweatshop getting berated by the boss making friends with a uh, with a girl i think she mentioned she's from haiti her friend that also works alongside her. But then slowly as you see her life start to unfold in this house, you start to see spooky stuff happening in the background. Full disclosure, I did think that this was a little bit cheesy and it's, oh, I've seen this all before. 
people lurking down dark corridors, just standing there. They were there one minute, they're not the next. They got spooky kind of glowing eyes effect. You think, yeah, this is quite standard. This is a bit kind of horror by the numbers. But it does develop into something a bit different. Because part of Amber's background that starts feeding into these weird things that you see happening in the house is that she's only recently been able to come to the US because she'd previously put her life pretty much completely on hold to tend to her sick mother. And she had plans of going to school back in Mexico. Her mother originally lived in the US. She lived in Texas before going to Mexico. And that's when she then had a daughter in Mexico. But was just going through this cycle of, hey, I'm ill. No, I'm better. Now I'm ill again, just as my daughter's starting to get uh, her life back on track. Now I'm ill again. I know I'm better. And it's pretty just destroyed any prospects of her having any kind of higher education, getting any qualifications and so on. So there's this underlying resentment that she has built up for her mother. And you get to see her kind of reminiscing a few times, going back to listening to recordings that they had of when they were together in hospital. And you continually get to see the hospital bed that her mother was in. You get to hear snippets of this recorded conversation quite a few times throughout the course of the film. And it's just building up this relationship and kind of really keeping it in the forefront of the viewer's mind. And then this weirdness in the house starts to develop a bit more. It starts to become more intense. Those figures start to become more frequent in their appearance. She starts seeing her mother calling her name, either in her room in the middle of the night when she wakes up or down the end of a corridor where there are other these figures with these glowing eyes. And it starts to become quite personal for her. Please, Mary. <laughs> Mary, please. Don't listen to Arthur. Please let me. She thinks she hears sounds downstairs, realises the other lady who's been renting an apartment has moved out. Two other girls from Eastern Europe come in, and you, you're kind of getting the vibe that it seems like the room rates are so cheap that they are attracting a particular kind of clientele. So they're almost mm. appealing directly to illegal immigrants, a.k.a. people that won't be missed when they go missing. Yeah. And then you start to hear that, yeah, there are various people that have gone missing in this house. There's a sudden appearance of what I thought at first was actually a ghost, but they later described it, that the owner who's been renovating the place just casually mentions, oh, yeah, my brother's here as well, <laughs> which... I was thinking, okay, that's a weird thing to just suddenly throw in there. But it turns out to be quite an important part that the reason he'd been hidden is because he is an integral part to the plot. That he's been going around the house, leaving these kind of dusty handprints and footprints around that's almost like a, um, not like an incense, but definitely kind of a, like a ritualistic powder that he's leaving on people's doors, on door frames, in corridors. Certain doors have been locked in the house that they can't go into. Although one door does mysteriously open, which Amber, being a typical Cthulhu investigator, decides to go and have a poke around in and finds lots of Aztec paraphernalia in the room. Oh. There's ritualistic swords hung up on the wall where they have chips of obsidian in place of making a large blade. It's just uh, like chunks like teeth of obsidian going down both sides of the blade. There's recordings that sound evidently more like something you'd find out of The Exorcist. It's kind of a, a ritualistic thing that's been repeated over and over, which you realise is what the brother was chanting as he was going around the house when you first saw him. And then there's a blink-and-you-miss-it book that's uh, sat on a desk, which she flicks through, which, thankfully for it being Netflix, I was able to go back and do freeze frames on the scene because that book turned out to be really important 
but was a very much you blink and you miss it reference in there. As far as the audience is concerned, if you're paying any kind of normal attention, there's a book on Aztec rites and rituals. She opens it up and finds a picture of something that looks a bit weird atop of a pyramid and evidently cutting people's heads off doing some kind of sacrifice. But you have to read the text that's kind of on the corner of the screen to work out exactly what's going on. Is this a book you own, Matt? No, but I'm going to track it down if it's a real book, because I think I could definitely get use out of this thing. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you planning to sacrifice? (laughs) I could think of a few people, but anyway. She starts, say, having a look a bit more around the house, and it slowly starts to escalate that she wants to get out after she has a typical Cthulhu investigator moment of the shit hits the fan in your room. She doesn't do the normal investigator thing of stand there and try to uh, solve what's going on. She gets the hell out of there. She just packs up and leaves. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's a quite nice, realistic response to what's going on. But is eventually talked into going back to the house to get her deposit back by the owner who you've met previously, only to find that she's effectively been lured back as a trap, that yeah. the owner and his brother are performing ritual sacrifices in the basement. And it's particularly for the brother's benefit. I'll probably leave it there for the description of uh, the film because I don't want to kind of ruin the ending of it, but it is a really, really good visual ending. And it moves into why I thought there was a lot more to talk about it as a piece for gaming than some of the other films I'd seen. The first one comes down to the motivations of those antagonists. But you've got the sick brother and you've got the owner of the house, the one that's depicted. His old I'm not sure if he's an older brother or younger brother, but there's, there's a little bit of an age difference. But the healthier one is very much he's taken on the role of looking after his sicker brother. And it kind of ties in with the reason why they came back to the house in the first place is because they were running out of money. The house had been left to them, but it needed a hell of a lot of work to bring it back up to code. And as they were looking around the place, because their father was an anthropologist and also downright bad guy, as it turns (laughs) out to be in some of the details you find. In Again, true Call of Cthulhu style, they found that he'd left some stuff in the basement. And you see this thing in particular, this box, occasionally pops up in certain scenes or visions that Amber has, where there's evidently there's something nasty inside. And this thing contains, for all intents and purposes, a god. It's not ever revealed in the dialogue what this thing is, what its intentions are, what its powers are, what its motivations are. But if you go back and freeze frame that book, you do get it. Because <laughs> it, it talks about the god in that particular section. Okay. From what it looks like, I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation here, is it's Papalotl, which is a, a god of paradise of those that died in infant mortality. Because another moment you see is this box, when it opens, it's just this long corridor that goes off impossibly long into the distance mm. through which this thing crawls out of. But in another shot, you'll see that when they open it up, there's this little child skeleton hiding inside so it gives you all these little motifs that if you know the aztec mythology behind it you can see oh that makes sense and it's definitely all these little bits and pieces here but individually if you have no frame of reference it's very inexplicable which something that um, cult goes into a fair bit in the gm book there where it says don't be afraid to shy away from the inexplicable nothing has to be totally explained in your game as long as there's an internal cohesive narrative that the gm can then thread together you might find it out later and i think that was a great example of this at play here that you had all this imagery but none of it was really explained in the film itself but still appeared to make some kind of sense or some kind of cohesive narrative you've got a knowledge of that mythology if you didn't have a knowledge of that mythology would the film work as well or is that 
does that kind of information come towards the end of the film? Does it all make sense then? Or It's hinted at in various bits and pieces. I mean, this was a goddess rather, not a god, that I wasn't massively familiar with, but I'd heard various snippets of it and was kind of had little bits bouncing around in the back of my head, like the obsidian butterfly is another, another name it's referenced to. Mm. There is a butterfly motif that goes throughout the whole film. You have these butterflies that seemingly appear and disappear throughout the house or outside following Amber. Their motif as a presence is very much throughout the whole thing. And then you've got little other bits like the child's skeleton and so on that, again, it all builds up if you're able to put it together and know the context. But the film does not give you that context otherwise. And I think that's fine. I think I've made the point on the podcast before that as long as you do have things like recurring motifs and as long as all the imagery and the concepts seem to be harmonious with each other, then you don't need an explanation. I think this is a great example of that. It really is quite powerful for visually in that respect. As I was mentioning about the the motivations of the brothers, they found that by performing sacrifices to this entity, that the sick brother is slowly being healed. The more sacrifices he performs, the stronger he gets, the, the more healthy he becomes. And that this is very much his incentive to keep on going is because he doesn't want to get sick again. And that it's then the healthier brother's link to him is to say, well, I've got to do the thing that helps my brother. And I think he does actually say at various times, like, he's my brother, what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. And it seems like there's there's very much an obligation there. Again, it struck me as just, wow, you've got two fairly bloodthirsty or fairly violent, morally reprehensible cultists, but they've got a motivation, and you can kind of empathise with them in that respect. Yeah. That They aren't just your faceless, robe-wearing cultists carrying big knives that kill people for the sake of their god. There's actually a, a real personal stake in it for them, and you kind of feel for them in that respect, even though he does do some pretty horrendous things throughout the the latter part of the film. The monster itself is pretty creative in how it appears. I won't spoil it, but this thing could be straight out of cult. (laughs) It's a very visually just wow kind of moment when it finally appears. This is based on a novel by Adam Neville, isn't it? Who we previously discussed the film based on his work, The Ritual. There's a few changes from the book to the film from having done some reading up online. I mean, I've not read the book. I've, I've not read any of Neville's books. The book was set in Birmingham, whereas the film is set in Cleveland. Bit of a difference. Yeah, or just just a little bit. In the book, it's a young woman who's working temp jobs, who's always strapped for cash and is kind of down on her luck and looking for a cheap place to live. Whereas the film, it's illegal immigrant, desperate for money to get a new identity, start a new life for herself. And it seems, from the bits I've read, it has a lot more of a personal stake in it rather than it just being a young woman that hasn't got much cash and is a bit of, not a failure, but seems just not to have really much prospects it just seems to have again a bit more of a personal touch to it a bit more of a stake in the film you can definitely tell they're written by the same person for one thing that i alluded to earlier in the ritual you've got oh my god it's that bloody off license again that turns up in the uh, forest time after time after time (laughs) after time after time in this it's the hospital bed except that's not in the book of the ritual that's something they added for the film (laughs) evidently whoever then made the film must have taken inspiration because that hospital bed while i was watching it thought it's turned up again okay you've made the point (laughs) you've made the point she had a sick mother i don't need to see that scene again i don't need to see it again for god's sake i could repeat the dialogue off by heart after about the fifth time it turned up I thought, yeah, this is too repetitive. I can understand, again, the need to try and keep it in the audience's face to reinforce a particular scene that happens when she confronts the goddess, but too much. Hmm. They could have cut several iterations of that scene out. 
but at least thankfully it wasn't a bloody off license <laughs> yeah i'm quite a fan of neville's work i've read i think four of his books yeah i think he's a one of the better horror writers around at the moment i don't know about this film because i've neither read the book it's based on nor seen the film but i mean certainly with the ritual i don't think the film did a fantastic job of capturing what was great about the book as i think i said during our discussion at the time and i i wonder from what you've said it sounds like there's some fairly massive deviations here but i wonder how this fares as an adaptation compared to the ritual hmm. i can't remember the exact response i had to the ritual i just remember it being fairly lackluster and being annoyed by that off license were the two key things that stuck in my head whereas this one i'd say there's a lot more positive that has stuck with me the visuals in particular, things like how that box is shown on screen, how the the goddess is portrayed on screen as well, just the design of it is amazing. How it plays with a setting, because modern day I always have, not, not always, but it's a little bit more of a struggle for me thinking of how to write a plot that would involve like traditional cultists like this, with your robes mm. and your daggers and so on, that it seems more appropriate to a 1920s setting for me because you've got more of that degree of isolation you've got more of the kind of the spread out untapped wilderness compared to the the urban setting but this hands down does it really really well that even mm. though she's still in a city it still feels really isolated because the place around the house seems completely deserted it's very run down it's got that old decaying feel to it from what you've said though i mean it sounds like they may not have the physical isolation there, but they have social isolation, mm -hmm. which is, I think, something you can use very much in modern-day games, where you have someone like that who is an undocumented immigrant who does not have the social network, the contacts, the the authorities, and so on that they can call upon. Then that is at least as much of a type of isolation as being out in the wilderness. Oh, yeah, God, the, it makes the point a few times where she says, yeah, no, don't call the police, don't call the police, I can't have the authorities here. Mm. So it mm. immediately cuts out a whole load of options that would be to your normal, regular Call of Cthulhu investigator, wouldn't be, you just don't have access to them because she gets that, back to Mexico she goes. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, wholeheartedly recommend it. It was one of the best films I've seen for quite a while. Yeah, cool. And did you say that's on Netflix, Matt? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And what about you, Scott? What have you got for us? Well, I've got three for the price of one. Two films in the story. Well, there, there was one film that I wanted to talk about, but I was going to get the context for it. So the film that I wanted to discuss was The New Candyman. Now, confusingly, it's a sequel to Candyman from 1992, but it's also called Candyman. And this seems to be some fucking trend in filmmaking at the moment, where you put out a sequel to something, but call it the same name. Halloween did it a few years back. There's the new Scream sequel coming out soon, which is called Scream. The Thing. Please, filmmakers, stop doing this. It's doing my head in. Apart from that, I think it's an excellent film, but I wanted to give the context for it. So... It obviously is a sequel to the 1992 film Candyman, but that in turn was based on Clive Barker's story, The Forbidden, from the Books of Blood, from Volume 5. It's, I think, kind of appropriate that this is a story that has been through these different iterations and reinventions as it's moved between book and film and then film to sequel, that it is fundamentally a story about the living dynamic nature of stories, about how they change and about the effects those have, the uses they're put to, and what belief in them means. 
So the Forbidden, the original Clive Barker story, was set in Liverpool in a fairly run-down council estate. And it's about a researcher from the local university who is looking into graffiti, basically looking into the sociology of graffiti, and going around taking photographs in abandoned council houses, and comes across this, what she eventually understands to be an urban legend. It's presented initially as sort of uh, friends of friends stories about murders that took place, not in this estate, but in neighbouring estates. But she'll go to the neighbouring estate and then the murders actually didn't take place there, but they took place somewhere else. But everyone knows the stories. This sort of leads to, it almost goes a bit wicked man, that there is an almost cultish belief that grows up in the community that seems to be bringing this murderer to life, this figure to life, and it's using elements of different urban legends, so he's got a hook for a hand, and the candy man of the story. He's not like we see in the films. He's not tied in with any backstory or history or something like that. He just seems to be something that is brought about out of collective memory, out of this mishmash of different people's ideas of what a sort of creepy, mysterious, murderous figure should be. And it's almost like the community wills him into life. It was interesting watching the 1992 Candyman again, because I hadn't seen that for some time. It wasn't quite the film that I remembered, because I think my memory has been somewhat affected by the sequels that came afterwards, which betrayed the Candyman figure in much less ambiguous terms. It's not quite the ghost story that I remembered. I mean, it again is very rooted in urban legends, and it brings in a few additional aspects, which I think rooted even more there. But it does add this backstory to the Candyman character, making him this African-American artist from the 1890s who had impregnated the daughter of a white client and the client stirred up this racist mob basically to track him down and torture him and chop off his hand, get him stung to death by bees and then burn him to death. And so, you know, as a result, there is this sort of ghost story aspect of it that goes in. But what I've forgotten from the film is that it's all much more ambiguous. There is much more about the shifting identity of Candyman across generations. This is sort of like the, the root of the legend, but there are other people who have adopted it and co-opted it since then. And by the end of the film, it's transformed into something else. And so that part of it really seems to be quite based in Barker's story. What the film does that Barker's story doesn't is a couple of things. It introduces this whole idea of saying the name Candyman while looking into a mirror, riffing off the old Bloody Mary urban legend as a way of summoning the spirit and, well, getting yourself killed. That wasn't in the Barker story at all. What it also does is it transposes the setting to the projects in Chicago and brings in the racial aspects of it, which aren't, again, there in Barker's original story. The root of the Candyman story is a black man killed by a racist mob. This then feeds very much into the beliefs of the African-American community living around the Chicago projects. What I didn't quite like so much about the 92 film 
I mean, it preserves the idea from the story of this student coming in from the outside and the almost cultish aspect of it. But I think because of the the context they placed on there with race, that it then became a bit uncomfortable that you had this white academic coming in, sort of doing this anthropological study almost of this black community and seeing them very much as others and superstitious and so on. And it just felt a bit uncomfortable. I think it still pays off all right, and it's not as bad as it could have been. It's just, it feels weird now, like 30 years later. And so now you have this new film, which was written by Jordan Peele. The directing duties have gone to Nia DaCosta. And this is a direct sequel to Candyman, which surprised me. I thought that it was going to be a reboot or a reinvention, but no, I mean, it, it is very much based on the events of the original film just 30 years later and ties in in some quite surprising ways, which I, I won't go into because I don't want to spoil it. But the protagonist is this young black artist called uh, Anthony McCoy, who is looking for materials for a new gallery exhibition. And he learns from someone who lives in the now fairly gentrified Cabrini Green area, this former project that was the setting for the original film, of... Not the Candyman story that we know of from the 92 film, but a different version of it, a kind of a version that this man came across in the 1970s with someone else who had taken on the identity of the Candyman and ended up being killed by the police because he was suspected of going around giving kids candies with razor blades in them and... It turns out to be completely innocent because that carried on going on after he was killed. So he takes this this concept and uses it as the basis of his art exhibition and mixes it in with the urban myths that he's heard about and the whole speaking Candyman's name into a mirror and stuff like that. And uses it as a way of exploring the sort of creeping gentrification of the area and the violence against black communities. It obviously then leads to a rebirth of the the Candyman concept. He himself begins to get changed by the whole thing. Again, there are some fairly nice revelations about that as well. Ultimately, this is a story about how those myths, those urban legends, end up getting reinvented for a new generation and turned into something new, while it's still got its roots and the imagery and the motifs of the original Candyman, that it has become something with a very different purpose by the end. I found that really quite refreshing, that for a, an entry in a franchise about the way that stories change, it fundamentally changes the Candyman story by the end. That, I think, is something that the two previous sequels missed out on completely. They just went down the, oh, it's a ghost story route and missed the whole aspect of belief and the creation of myth that goes into this film in a big way. But a story like that, a pain like that, lasts forever. That's Candyman. So, he's real. Bell is real. Samuel Sherman. 
Daniel Robitaille, they're all real. Candyman is how we deal with the fact that these things happen. That they're still happening. I mean, at the same time, it, I think, really works as a horror film. There are some nasty bits in it, but at the same time, it's relatively subtle. You almost never see someone get killed directly, or at least if you do, you tend to see it at a distance. But on the other hand, you tend to see kind of little bits and creepy reflections through mirrors and people getting killed by invisible forces and stuff like that. And it's both brutal and subtle at the same time in a way that I don't think I've seen in too many horror films. There's also a surprising amount of body horror in it as well, where one of the characters is transformed by exposure to Candyman over time to the extent of almost becoming a living beehive with all the cells appearing in his flesh and and his hand rotting away and stuff like that. And it's really quite uncomfortable. I loved the imagery there. I guess the only thing that I didn't really like about this compared to the 92 was the fact that the 92 film had this fantastic score by Philip Glass, an absolutely iconic score, which really, I think, took what was already a a very stylish and artistic film and transformed it into something that at times was just absolutely spellbinding. And they did reuse that score in the first couple of sequels, and I don't know, even Philip Glass couldn't save those films. And while they do use riffs on that theme uh, throughout the new version. It's not the Philip Glass version. And yeah, I missed it. I remember watching a few reviews of the Candyman series that a few uh, reviewers on YouTube have done and pointing out some of the holes and inconsistencies between the second and third films compared to the first. It's like, oh yeah, he was down in Louisiana. So then what they did, they killed him and then they just shipped his body back for burial in uh, Chicago. You see, that part of it doesn't bother me because if it is about myths and legends and these the inconsistencies and the reinventions and the fact that different communities take the same stories and turn them into different things, that is actually one of the few parts that would be true to the original film. The fact that those bits are inconsistent. Oh, see, I've, I've not read the story, but I remember watching the first film and got that impression that it was very much a local god or a local thing that they'd been developing. Yeah. The subsequent film kind of jarred that a little bit, but I can see your point being yeah. it more relevant to the, the book, or at least the story. As far as gaming inspiration goes, obviously the whole use of urban legends, that is... I'd say the core of something like Unknown Armies to an extent, and maybe Mage of the Ascension as well, sort of the power of belief to shape reality or to create these mythic figures. You could almost see the Candyman as an Unknown Armies Godwalker, almost. Except that he arguably was never a real person. But it did get me thinking about how something like that might work in Call of Cthulhu, you don't necessarily have the same underpinnings in the Cthulhu mythos about the power of belief shaping consensus reality. But I guess you could play with it, perhaps. Well, one thing that did strike me is that in the new Candyman film, with the fact that it's an artist as a central character bringing these myths in and inadvertently transforming the world through them, you could almost see it as a kind of King and Yellow story. There are certainly parallels there that you have this dangerous, potentially fictional belief that is shaping reality. 
I mean, you could play with, say, Candyman and turn him into something out of Carcosa. What I thought was perhaps more interesting, and this touches upon spoiler territory for, for the second film or for the new film, is the use of dangerous magic to protect or transform communities if you're worried about the safety of the people around you if you're worried about the safety of your community or the the transformation of it by outside forces of it what kinds of things you're willing to draw upon or make pacts with in order to try to preserve it and keep you and yours safe and you know whether those bargains are are actually worth it and from a call of cthulhu point of view i mean that's something i have played with a bit in in some cthulhu dark games but yeah the idea that if you are desperate enough then the mythos begins to look potentially quite appealing even if it is dangerous alien corrosive to your sanity and your well-being is it going to be any worse than the mundane world around you there's another game I could see this being good inspiration for, and that's Vason. Oh, yeah. It kind of touches on some of the... Cause in the core book, I won't explain it in detail because it is actually listed as being like the big secret of the meta plot of the game. But this does tie in to a degree with that. But Vason is more tied to the 19th century thematically. So if there were to be a version, if you wanted to carry that on into the modern day, this could be a great example of how that game could work in a, in a different time setting. So just to recap, the three films that we discussed were Free Fire, No One Gets Out Alive, and Candyman. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to the podcast. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a few new individuals to thank by name. Yep, we start off with a thanks to Nolan Jackson. And also thank you very much to John Casey. Aha. And uh, thank you very much to someone who is coincidentally the newest moderator on our Discord server, Dave the Kraken. And thanks to Khalil H. Niori. Who has also become very active on our Discord server. It's all about the Discord. And also thank you very much to Neil Glassford. And if you want to find out how to join our Discord, you can do so by going to blasphemoustomes.com. And there's a link there in the margin, right, Scott? Yep, and I'll put it in the show notes. And... As ever, if you are enjoying the podcast and would like other people to enjoy the podcast, please do tell them about it. Whether this means leaving a review online, saying something nice on social media, or just whispering in your friend's ears as they sleep. We'll take any of those. Just get the good word of Jackson out there and we'll do the rest. Okay, well, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. That's it for this week. So it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.